We are continuing our time in 1 John. I think we have six weeks left in 1 John. Today our passage will be chapter 3, verses 10 through 24. Write that down in your worship guide. If you're using a blue Bible, it's on page 1,124. Next week, there's going to be a little bit of overlap in our passages again. Next week, we're going to be in chapter 3, verse 23, through chapter 4, verse 6. Chapter divisions are helpful, but sometimes they're unhelpful. So we'll see more about that in just a bit. Today, uh, there's going to be some repetition. Today, John is going to be telling us some things he's already been telling us. Today, he's going to be connecting some dots that have already been thrown up on the board. And he's summarizing some things and bringing some ideas together that we've already visited, that we've already been familiar with a little bit. Today, he's going to bring in an Old Testament story of Cain and Abel from Genesis chapter 4. Today, he's going to talk about generosity. Today, he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Today, he's going to talk about prayer. He's going to be talking about how to pray well. He's going to be talking about how to have confidence when you stand before God. He's going to talk about what to do with condemning feelings when condemnation jumps upon you, as condemnation does to all of us at times. At least, it does me. I assume it does you also. Today, let's begin our reading with verse 10, and I will read through verse 24. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, that we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, then, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. Please take a few minutes and read this passage to yourself individually. Get familiar with it. Be ready to share something. If you've got any questions, think through them a little bit. Be ready to share. When the time is right, your table leader will begin the discussion. Um, this, this passage, as I said earlier, it brings together many elements that we've already seen John talk about. 
John keeps throwing dots up on the page, and he just is making connections between them constantly. And he's kind of painting a beautiful portrait, a beautiful picture of what the Christian life is supposed to be like. Um, I read a funny story this week uh, by Pastor J.D. Greer. He's got a uh, church in Raleigh that he pastors. And he tells the story of a friend of his. Um, His friend's little girl uh, came back home from school one day. And she went up to her daddy and and she said, Daddy, somebody, my friend at school, told me today that if I want to go to heaven, I have to ask Jesus in my heart. And the daddy wasn't a Christian. He didn't know what to do about that. But he had heard that if you ask Jesus into your heart, that, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. So she said, Daddy, can you help me do that? So this daddy who loved his daughter gave his best shot helping his little girl to ask Jesus into his heart. But right before she started to do it, she said, Daddy, how tall was Jesus? And he says, I don't know. Close to six foot, maybe? She says, well, I'm only four feet. If he comes into my heart, isn't he going to be coming out of me? There's not enough room for him in there. And, you know, people will tell you that if you want to go to heaven, you've got to ask Jesus into your heart. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. If you want to go to heaven, you've got to believe in Christ for salvation. And through that faith, you will, your life will be transformed and your life will change. But that story captures an idea that is all throughout John. That if Jesus is inside of you, there's going to be evidence of it. He will be flowing out of you in an undeniable way. Last week, we saw in verses 1 through 10 that if we are truly children of God, that we must live a righteous life. And in verse 10, he makes a bit of a transition. And he says also that if you are going to be a child of God and not a child of the devil, not only must you live a righteous life on an ongoing basis, but you must also love your brother. Now, this isn't talking about your mommy's other kid. This is talking about the family of God in the church. This is talking about your brothers and sisters in Christ. You may not have the same blood flowing through your your veins that your physical brother and sister have, but you're saved by the same blood. The same blood, the blood of Jesus, has wiped away your sin. And so I preach this today to a church family. I preach this today knowing that most of us, probably maybe even all of us in here, are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I preach this here today knowing that these are things that we are obligated to do to one another. We all, um, this is part of our calling as Christians. So verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Yes, he says there's children of the devil out there. We have people in our lives. I have people in my home that are children of the devil. Amen. (laughs) When we're not saved. We're children of the devil. I spent at least about probably 13 years of my life being a child of the devil. So, and if you want to see more on that, read verses 7, 8, and 9. We looked at that pretty closely last week. So by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Two things. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And that will be the focus. That will be where we focus. That's where John focuses, is on this idea of loving your brother and sister. So verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Pay attention as we go through these verses. You're going to see the word we over 
and over and over again. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about we. It's about us together. And he says that you've heard this from the beginning. This idea of loving your brother is foundational. It, it, it was, what are the two greatest commandments? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love your neighbor as yourself. But then, even within that idea of loving your neighbor, there's this special love that is to exist in the church. Not the institution church, but the family church. The organism that is alive that we call the church. The church is not the building. But we are to love one another. The members of our church family. And you have heard this from the beginning. This was not something new for John's readers. But this is something that bears repeating. And it bears repeating very often. In verse 12, we begin to go and revisit the life of Cain. Now in verses 12 through 18, what we're going to see John telling us is that we need to be like Jesus and not like Cain. He brings up Cain to show how we should not live, and he references Jesus. He doesn't use his name, but if you read verse 16, it's very clear. Verse 12, he says clearly, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. See, Cain was of the evil one. He is what verses 8 and 9 and 10 call a child of the devil. And he murdered his brother because he was evil. He did not murder his brother and then become evil. He murdered his brother because he was evil. It says he was of the evil one. If you're a child of the devil, if, if you're of the evil one, you know, it works the same way in that family as it does in other families. The nut doesn't fall far from the tree. In verse 9, we saw about God's seed. Last week, we also talked about how we are like our Father. In good ways, bad ways, in so many ways. And in many ways, there's nothing we can do to help that. It's just the way that God designed it. Now, Cain and Abel, um, Cain was a gardener. Abel was a shepherd. Abel took a sacrifice to God. God accepted it. Cain took a sacrifice to God. God did not accept it. Hebrews 11 says that Abel's offering was made in faith. Cain's was not. There was something about Cain's offering. The way he brought it to God it was not acceptable to God. And that's a theme we see throughout the scripture. Cain got mad. He murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Verse 12 says... Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And then John flows right into verse 13 saying, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. If you are righteous like Abel, then the unrighteous world, Cain, is going to hate you. And that's just the way it is. We see this as a big idea. In Jesus' teaching, there's probably a dozen verses that we could turn to right now and look where Jesus was promising that the world is going to hate you. The world hates us for several reasons. They're of the evil one. And the evil one is hateful. So they are like their father, like we used to be. 
full of hate. And that, that's, what, that's what motivates the world that does not know God. The world also hates us, and this can be, we can see this in numerous other verses, but the world hates us because our deeds are righteous and theirs are evil. And when you do the right thing and other people around you aren't, there's conviction that comes upon them. Even if they say there's no such thing as right or wrong, them not liking you and not, or them hating you, let me say it like that, shows that there's some type of conviction in them that they cannot deny even if they say that there is no right and wrong. When we come to God and start living a righteous life, then God's number one. And sometimes we live our life for other people. If you're living your life for someone else and then all of a sudden you stop, doesn't it make sense that they're going to hate you or not like you when you change and shift your allegiance from other people or to other things to God himself? And another reason they don't like us is because we don't enjoy the things that the world enjoys. The things that we used to go and do. We can't do those things anymore. So, so you know, those things used to bring entire groups of people together. But now we don't do those things. It's like we don't belong. And there's this rift. There's this tearing within our family and friendship and within our network of friends. Where all of a sudden the stuff that brought us together no longer brings us together. In verse 14 and 15, John writes... We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This just kind of wraps this section up about Cain for us. There's not much more to say. Verse 14, I will say this, where it says we pass out of death into life. That's another reference to the new birth. That's what we talked about last week, that we've been born of God. And we're going to see that more again uh, when we get into chapter 5. But we've been born of God. There's been a new birth. There's been a change. We can call it regeneration. We didn't have life, and now we do have life. We have spiritual life inside of us all of a sudden. And even though our heart was beating and we were breathing an hour ago, now we've been changed. Now we've been made new. Now we have the life of God because we've been born again into his family. And when it says at the end of verse 14, whoever does not love abides in death. And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I just want to ask you point blank, do you hate anyone in this room? If you do, there's a possibility you may not be saved. So I, if you find yourself answering that question with a yes, let somebody know. Let me know. Grab an older sister, older brother in Christ. Let them know. Confess that sin to someone else. Let's figure out where it's coming from and let's resolve it so we can move forward. So when we get to verse 16, our attention is turned towards Jesus. All of the Bible is about Jesus. All of the Bible is about the gospel. You know, it doesn't always seem obvious to us, but it's very clear in verse 16. He says, by this we know love. There's that phrase again, by this. By, we're going to see it again, I think, in verse 19. By this. By this. 
by this. It's over and over again in 1 John. But by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we know love. How do we know what real love is? Because God sent Jesus to give up his life, to take the punishment for our sin, to have his body broken, his blood poured out, all this taking the punishment of God and the wrath of God for our sin, willingly, obediently taking that upon himself and losing his life. That's love, and it cost him. It cost him greatly. So that's the standard of love. That is the standard of love. Love calls us to do something. Love costs us something. Loving others can be inconvenient. And this is about our church family. I think one of the biggest problems in the church in general in our world today is we all bicker and fuss so much and we don't get along. The unbelieving world looks at us and they think we're a joke. What if this was our story? What if we served one another so faithfully that other people saw us functioning so well? Other people saw us caring for our own. Other people saw us just giving and giving and giving. While it is true that some would hate us, as we've already seen in verse 12 and 13, I bet some would want to know, what is with those people? You know, the people that meet in that building every Sunday, they meet and they eat together and they laugh and they have fun. And if somebody's upset about something or if somebody's having something hard going on, he tells them, she tells them, and they listen. There's something special about that group of people there. I commonly read the book of Acts, and, and I, it's one of those places in the Bible I just keep going back to over and over again. It's one of my favorite places to preach. And I see something beautiful functioning in the book of Acts. The book of Acts covers the first 30 to 40 years of what happened in the church, of how the church spread after Jesus went back up to heaven. One of the things that we see in Acts chapter 2, this is in verse 44, it says that all who believed were together and had all things in common... And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And it goes on later to say that they received their food with glad and generous hearts. There was no place for stinginess. When you love, there is no place for stinginess. Later on in Acts chapter 4, it says this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is a vision for radical generosity. This makes me uncomfortable. Now, there are people in our world today 
There are people in Washington that will say that the Bible teaches socialism. And that is not true. This is not advocating for socialism. Socialism is where someone else tells you what you have to do with the money that you worked hard for. Giving and generosity is where you want to give away the money that you've worked hard for and the money that God has given you. Someone stealing from you or forcing you to do something does not create the life of God within your soul. And anywhere that type of government is in place, it crumbles and it shatters people for generations and it brings them under bondage of corrupt people. What I just read to you from the book of Acts and what John is telling us today in 1 John chapter 3 is not a case for socialism. Let me ask you this also. Do you love your brother? Do you love people because you need to be needed? Do you love other people because you need their approval? Do you love other people because you want them to like you? Do you do things for other people because you're afraid if you don't that they will not have anything to do with you? Verses 16 and 17 call us to a very different type of love. Verses 16 and 17 call us to a love that seeks the good of the one receiving the love. Verses 16 and 17 calls us to seek the good of the one who is receiving the love. We're seeking the good of that person Not for ourselves primarily. Do you ever try to do things for someone because you want them to be a part of your life? That is not loving. That is manipulation. Codependency is one of the words that can go well with it also. So, God, so he's not talking about socialism and he's not talking about manipulation. And, and let me tell you, this manipulation part, we all struggle with it from time to time. Some of us more than others. We've got to be careful with this. And in verses 17 and 18, it's also, it's not talking about every person you see in need. I was in Virginia Beach a few days ago, and we had the people on the corners. Okay, when I was in Austin, Texas, that's something I saw every single day. All right? I don't think these verses are obligating you to give to them. I'm not saying it's wrong to give to them or you shouldn't, but I'm not saying that you have to. I don't think anywhere in the Bible says that you have to. Because I see them and I get that guilt thing going on in my head that I need to just throw the money out the window. But but that doesn't come from the Word of God. It does not come from the Word of God. So verses 17 and 18. What is it talking about? If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If someone doesn't have food and you do, give them the food. Even if you don't have enough money for three days from now. Man, y'all know me. I got... There's two refrigerators and a deep freezer in my house. I got a lot of food in my house. And I got a lot of food walking around in the yard. And I got something growing in the yard. I got food all over the place. If you ever need some food, let me know. I'll give you some food. Okay? I got food that lasts me weeks at my house. All right? And praise God for that. It's awesome. And that's the case for, for some of you, too. But if I didn't have food for Tuesday, and I've got food today, and someone, one of you comes to me, and you don't have food for today, 
then these verses tell me to give you my food for tomorrow. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pray, dear God, give us this day our daily bread. And when tomorrow gets here, he's going to give me my daily bread then. So this is telling us, don't close your heart against your brother or sister in Christ. And don't love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Don't just say, oh, have a good day, I'll pray for you. No, I have some food now. And it's for you. That's what verses 16 and 18, 17 and 18 are calling us to. When we get to verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. Let me tell you, verses 18 and 19 is an unfortunate spot for a paragraph break. You know, I, I said earlier that when the Bible was written, it didn't have chapter divisions, and while they're helpful, they can be unhelpful. Same way with these paragraphs. Okay, from, from the best we can tell, you know, these, these paragraphs that we have in our Bible weren't carried over from the original translation. But it, what happens if you read verses 18 and 19 together? Let's do that. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. I believe that the by this in verse 19 is talking about what we've seen in verses 16 through 18. It's talking about the life of loving your brother. Verse 19, it talks about reassuring our heart before him. And when we look ahead in the next few verses, we're going to see that what 19 and 20 is talking about. It's about prayer. When it's time for you to go to God and talk to him, and, and be per- to, when it's time for you to approach him face to face, just the two of you, or even in a group setting. Yeah, I believe the rest of this passage is talking about that individual, personal relationship with God. Our corporate relationship together with one another affects us individually when we come before the throne of God. See, when you think about going to God, and when you do go to God, does anyone else struggle with this? You start thinking about all the reasons you're not qualified to go to God. You start thinking about the bad attitude you've been struggling with. You start thinking about how stingy you were yesterday. You start thinking about losing your cool with your coworker earlier today. You've got all these things that can come on you that just heap up guilt and condemnation upon you. When we go to God, we, we see His perfections and our imperfections often scream at us. So verses 19 and 20 are complicated. Let me ask you this. How many of y'all, well, I mean, there's a lot of us in this room that are not from Gates County. How many of y'all moved to Gates County? And my wife is one of them. How many of you moved to Gates County and you heard someone say something and you were like, that's not how you talk. <laughs> you ever had that happen? Like, or, or maybe you're traveling somewhere else and they just speak English in a way that's very, very different. Okay? Well, verses 19 and 20 in the Greek, John just starts making his own grammar up. He starts breaking rules of, of the Greek language. He starts speaking in ways that are not common. And because of that, verses 19 and 20 are hard to translate. They're hard to interpret. 
And there, there's kind of two major interpretations, and even Luther and Calvin disagreed on, on what these two verses meant. And, and I think I have changed my mind after studying it all week. But the way our Bible in front of us does it, it's pretty unclear. It's hard. But I've found in the New American Standard Bible, I think it does a little bit of a better job. Let me read this in 19 and 20. Just listen. Don't look at your Bible because what I'm going to read is a little bit different. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. Let me read that again. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. I believe here that John is saying that because we love the church family and because we serve the church family, that that will serve as assurance to us of our salvation. If a Christian is outside of a church family, if a Christian doesn't love or someone who claims to be a Christian doesn't want to be around their brothers and sisters in Christ, doesn't want to have anything to do with them, then it makes it harder for them to know if they're saved or not. Now, they can lie to themselves and be delusional and think they are. But here it says that if we love indeed and in truth, we will know that we are of the truth. If you are living in right relationship with your church family, then you can know. It's a sign. You, you can be assured or reassured that your heart belongs to Him when you go to Him in prayer. Your love for your brothers and sisters serves as evidence that you have really believed. And to have our hearts reassured has to do with being persuaded of that which is true. Because even though I'm fairly confident that I am saved, every once in a while I struggle with it just a tiny little bit. And as the years go by, it gets less and less. But because I love the church family, because they love me, because I'm part of a family that's, that's bigger than myself, I can be persuaded that I really do belong to God based on my actions towards the church family. Our actions show that God's seed is in us. And because God's seed is in us, because we've been born again, we are different. Any of y'all have a heart like mine? It's deceitful. It lies to you. Your emotions mess with you. Not that the heart and emotions are completely the same, but in many ways there's a ton of overlap. Even though our heart condemns us, God knows all things. And He is greater than our hearts. When our hearts condemn us, God's truth of the gospel is greater than the lie that we can say to ourselves. And God knows even the nastiest, sickest thing about us. And if you really belong to Him, He still says, that, that one's mine. He is greater than our heart. And He knows everything. The freedom and the pardon that He has given us is greater than the guilt and the shame and the condemnation of our sin. And this enables us to pray. And verse 21 and 22 is all about that prayer. Beloved, like verse 21 and 22 is like the result of what happens when your heart no longer condemns you. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. This is a result of what takes place in verses 19 and 20. 
If we know that God is greater than our hearts and He does not condemn us, even though He knows everything about us, we can still go to Him in prayer. He still accepts us. Now it does say here that He gives us what we ask Him because we keep His commandments. But let me tell you, this is not moralistic. This is not you do what God tells you and God's going to pay you by answering your prayer. This has nothing to do with merit. This has nothing to do with earning an answered prayer. Every gift from God is just that. It is a free gift. So this is not you working hard to get your prayers answered, but this just has everything to do with you staying home. It's been talking about remaining and abiding in Him, being attached to the source of life, which is none other than God Himself. And if you stay in that right relationship with God where you remain and abide in Him, then you're in the right house. You're in the right family. You're connected to the one who gives Everything, And when you're connected to him, you're also going to ask for things that he wants. Instead of coming up with some idea that's not what he wants, that he's unwilling to answer. Many of the reasons God doesn't answer our prayers is because we pray for dumb stuff. But if we're connected to him, if we remain in him, if we abide in him, if we stay home at his house, instead of running to somebody else's house, I'm not talking about the church building, y'all know what I'm saying, But if we stay home with him, then we're going to be in a position where we can receive his provision for him. Okay? Now, you know, sometimes people, teenagers, run away from their mom and dad, right? Okay? When they do that, they break off the supply of provision or any goodness that they might have for their parents. Now, the truth is, many times, kids who do run, not all the time, but sometimes when kids run away, they're running away from a bad home. I get that. But sometimes kids run away and they're running away from a good home. Well, not only is our father's home perfect, our our father's home good, our father's home is perfect. His family is perfect. And if you don't remain in him, if you don't abide in him, if you're running away from his house and going over to someone else's house, then you can't receive the provision because you're not staying home the way that you are supposed to. We can go to God and pray and look at Him face to face because Jesus has saved us and wiped all our sin away. We can have confidence when we go to Him. And He will give us what we pray for. But we have to remain attached to Him. We have to abide in Him and stay close to Him. And we get to verse 23. I'm going to wrap it up here with this verse. What is His commandment? He just said... God answers prayers because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Verse 23 tells us what is His commandment. It is this, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Two things here. Number one, that you believe. Now, the original language is very interesting here. I had one of those like, whoa moments when I was reading this this week and looking into thank God for commentaries and then I went back and I looked because I don't know that much Greek and I looked and the little bit I do know I'm like oh yeah that is there that's cool but when it talks about believe in verse 23 that we believe in the name the Greek tense shows that it has to do with something that you did one time in the past now when you the verb love where it says love one another that's a continuous present ongoing action that's very clear from the Greek language. We lose that in our English translations. So there's a difference. There's believing at one point in the past that's over and done. 
Now, obviously, we continue to believe, but with this, what John's talking about, he's talking about one point in the past. And then he's talking about loving people in a present way, ongoing, today, tomorrow, the next day, next year, so on, every day till the day you die. I believe that John is referencing here the new birth that we saw last week. I believe that he's talking about that point in our lives where we're converted, where we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I haven't believed that you're the way to God. Maybe I've been working hard to get there myself. Maybe I've been doing good things. Maybe I've been serving people. Maybe I've been trying to get the, the side of my scale that has the good works to outweigh the side of my scale that has the bad works. Maybe I've just been hoping to get in if you come back before I'm ready. He's talking about something very different from that. He's talking about where you come and you say, Jesus, you're the only way to heaven. I've already screwed it up. I can't be good enough. I, I'm guilty before you. Jesus, I believe in you, and I have no other hope to be saved. I have no other hope to be forgiven. Jesus, save me! Now, you could have believed and not said it exactly like I said it. It doesn't have to look just like I, I put it. But I want to ask you, have you believed in Jesus for salvation? He loves you. If you haven't believed in Jesus for salvation... I want to tell you, there's nothing too big that you've done that would, will stop him from receiving you right where you are. Are you trying to get your life in order before you come to him? Well, if you keep trying, you're going to die trying because you can't get it ready for him. The way it works with God is not the type of thing where we clean up our house and then let him in. No, we let him in and then he cleans up our house. I'm asking you, have you believed in Christ? Have you asked Him to save you? If you haven't, I want you to ask Him that. And I want you to know that He hears that prayer. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you believed in Christ for salvation? If you haven't, just trust Him. And trust Him right now. He is so good. There's nobody like Him. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will make you new and he will teach you how to live. And it is a beautiful thing. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for kindness and goodness towards us. God, I ask that we would take heart the things today that John is saying. God, I pray that our love for one another would never grow cold, but it, that it would increase and abound more and more as the years ahead pass us by. Thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you, Lord, for your body broken for us on that cross and your blood poured out for us on that hill. We receive you, God. We love you. We need you. Be near to us, we pray. Amen. Amen.